You know, if you were here last night, I said when I got up during that singing and gave that little devotional that this is a, a gamble because uh, those who don't know that we're having any sort of meeting and think it's just a, a singing, uh, you hear me talk for 10 minutes and some might say, okay, we want to come back tomorrow night. And then others might say, well, we've heard enough of that guy um, not coming back. And based on our relative attendance between <laughs> tonight and last night, uh, I'd say it was the latter, more of the reaction. But I'm, I'm certainly glad that, that you're here this evening. And I think what we want to talk about for a few minutes is a, a topic that's of uh, extreme importance. We often ask questions like this, and we say they're rhetorical in nature, but this is not a rhetorical question. You know, I'll say typically, you know, nobody raise your hand. I want you to raise your hand in response to this. How many, and, you know, you're not being put on the spot here in the sense that uh, I'm going to yell at you if you answer this wrong or anything. How many of you here tonight are Christians? If you're a Christian, raise your hand up high. Look around. I want you to see. That's almost everyone in here, Okay. Put your hands down. I want to ask a second question. How many of you are completely confident that if you died tonight, you would go to heaven? Raise your hand. There's a lot fewer hands up. I see some that were looking around to see whether other people raised their hands up before they raised their hand up or not. There were still some up, and that's a good thing. But I saw a lot of people who didn't have theirs up. There ought not to be any difference in the number of hands that were raised to those two questions. But there's often a discrepancy. And that's really what we want to address tonight. Why does that discrepancy exist? We spoke for a few minutes last night about the messages that we teach when we sing. We're instructing one another. That's one of the things we're accomplishing. And the song we sang just before the lesson, Blessed Assurance. In that song, Fanny J. Crosby writes about this assurance, this confidence that we should have if we're in Christ. When we're born of water and the Spirit, washed in the blood, our sins are forgiven, we have this foretaste of glory divine. We are saved. We become heirs of God, she says. That's our story. And it's certain, it is assured. Why then do so many of us, probably all of us from time to time, if we're honest, lack that confidence? Why do we not have that assurance that we sing about in that song? And I think there are several things in play here. For one thing, we have a, a fundamental misunderstanding of God's nature, who He is. We fail to appreciate, in a lot of ways, what he's trying to accomplish, uh, the work that he's put forth on our behalf. We have an imperfect realization of what it truly means for us to be in Christ, and I think all of these factors combine to affect this confidence that we have. And we could spend weeks laying the groundwork for that. I just finished teaching a class uh, in Liberty, a whole quarter we talked somewhat about this. Uh, obviously, we don't have weeks. So I just want to cover some of that groundwork in passing tonight. And what I really want to do, by way of laying that groundwork, is to answer that question. How can we have confidence in Christ? How can we have that assurance that we sing about? 
One of the things that I'm convinced we need to be more aware of when we think about the Bible is the meta-narrative of Scripture. And by that, all I mean is the big story. We tend to take the Bible and we chop it up, we slice it and dice it into these discrete little pieces, and we'll look at a little story here from the Old Testament. We'll talk about Abraham, and then we'll come over here and we'll talk about Jesus, and now we'll go talk about one of the prophets like Daniel, and then maybe we'll go back and talk about Samson and so on and so forth. And that can be helpful in some ways. But the detriment is we fail to appreciate sometimes how all of these little bitty stories actually add up to make one big story. The Bible is one cohesive story. And the main character is God. And it's telling us all about what God has done, what God's doing now, and what God is going to do in the future. And so I want us to just think briefly about things that we all know. But let's think about this big story from a sort of 50,000 foot view to begin tonight. God's love motivated him to create the world. We should never forget that. That's fundamental to his nature. And with love comes relationship. Brother Johnson talked about this in his prayer, the fellowship that God desires to have with us. And so in the beginning, in the garden, God sought that relationship with Adam and Eve. He walked in the garden with them, if you remember. But sin entered the picture and it fractured that relationship. It resulted in Adam and Eve being expelled from paradise. And of course, the fall of humanity continued. There was a downward spiral of degeneration that ultimately culminated in the flood where God destroyed so much of his creation, most of humanity wiped it out. And in the process, God established a new relationship with someone who could represent him, with Noah. That's what we see repeated, essentially, over and over and over again in Scripture. The story of God's efforts to repair his broken relationship with human beings, his desire to have fellowship with them, to seek people who will bear his image, as we see in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, to be his image bearers out in the world. Well, as most of us probably remember, God later established a lasting relationship with one of Noah's descendants, a fellow named Abraham. He promised him land. He promised him that his descendants would become a mighty nation. And most importantly, he promised that through those descendants, through him, all people in the world would be blessed. So Abraham became God's special representative. God entered into this covenant relationship with him. And through his descendants, God reestablished this relationship that had been broken by sin. And we see the way he keeps his covenant with Isaac and with Jacob and with Joseph. And even when Abraham's family is then enslaved down in Egypt, God asks, he steps forward to deliver them on account of this covenant that he's made. He delivered them from their enemies. He established a covenant with the people as a whole on Mount Sinai. And God walked with the Israelites because they were in a covenant relationship with him. He continued to be faithful to them even when they were faithless. If you remember, even while Moses was up on the mountain after they'd agreed tentatively to this covenant, Moses is getting the stipulations for it in the Ten Commandments, 
and they sin against God, they rebel by building the golden calf and starting to worship it. God still continue to be faithful to them. And that story in a microcosm, that's a nutshell of God's interaction with Israel. If you're to read the rest of the Old Testament, we see this pattern playing out repeatedly. The history of Israel shows this pattern of rejection in their relationship with God. From doubting him on the doorstep of the promised land, he's led them all the way up to take it, and then they become afraid because of the Canaanite tribe. To then in the days of the kings rejecting worship of God so that they could go after idols. God sends prophets to try to call them back into communion with him, but they persist in their rebellious ways. And so ultimately, God punishes them by having them carried away into exile. The Assyrians for the northern kingdom and uh, the Babylonians for the kingdom of Judah. But in the midst of all this, the prophets looked forward to a day when God would establish a new covenant with a righteous remnant of Israel. And I think particularly of one of the most important passages that we find uh, in the Old Testament. This promise of the new covenant is Jeremiah puts it. Jeremiah chapter 31, beginning in verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. I want you to note here, God is seeking a relationship with his people, and there's a connection here, a bond between relationship and forgiveness. Everyone will know God, it says, for he will forgive iniquity. He will remember sin no more. So what we see throughout the Old Testament is a God who is repeatedly reaching out to his creation. He acts on humanity's behalf so that they might enjoy the blessings of having fellowship with him. But people's sins keep getting in the way. So the story that we see is God trying to repair that relationship that was fractured in the garden, acting on behalf of humanity to restore it. We think about the most famous verse probably in all the Bible, the golden text, John 3:16. We all know that one. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Well, that's not only what God does in Christ. That's really the thread that runs throughout all of Scripture. That is what this story is all about. The big story is all about God setting things right so that those who believe in Christ should not perish, but have that eternal life with God. What we find in the New Testament then is that God has done that. We're reconciled to God. That relationship has been repaired in Christ. Romans chapter 5, 
Beginning in verse 1, the Apostle Paul writes, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Paul says that we're at peace with God. But to understand what it means to be at peace with God, we really need to understand that we were once God's enemies. Paul says just a couple of chapters before this that we're all sinners. Chapter 3, verse 10, there's none righteous, no, not one. Chapter 3, verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. John writes in 1 John chapter 3, verse 4, that sin is lawlessness. Sin is a transgression of the law. So when we talk about this relationship with God being fractured by sin, as it was back in the garden, sins are acts that violate God's law. We're all sinners. That makes us lawbreakers. That makes us outlaws. That makes us people who are deserving a punishment. That's what we earn. That's what we merit. God is just, and his justice demands that he punish transgressors. We earn the penalty of our sins. And so we're headed for judgment. We're headed for punishment. We're hopeless. We're helpless. We're powerless to do anything to remedy our situation in and of ourselves. And yet at the same time, Paul says here in this passage, we have peace with God. How is that possible? We're outlaws. How can we be at peace with God? He answers that too in this very same passage. That's where the peacemaker comes in. Through our Lord Jesus Christ. God's justice on the one hand demands that he punish sin. But his love on the other hand as Peter writes he's unwilling that any should perish. He desires that all should come to repent. And so the way we resolve this dilemma, this tension between God's justice on the one hand and his love on the other, is in Christ. Jesus himself is the peacemaker. To understand that more fully, we really need to understand this word justified that's used here in chapter 5, verse 1. That's a passive verb. That is, this isn't something that we do for ourselves. This is something that is done to us. We can't justify ourselves. The word means to be acquitted, to be declared to be innocent or better, not guilty, to be pronounced and treated as if we're righteous. So in other words, Paul isn't saying that we are righteous. He's saying that we're treated as if we were righteous on account of Christ. Consider what he says in the chapter before, chapter 4, verse 3. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Based on his faith, Abraham was treated, reckoned, your translation may say, counted just as if he were righteous. Even though, in fact, he wasn't. If you know anything about the story of Abraham, he made a lot of mistakes. He sinned uh, more than once. We're familiar with those things. Well, the same thing is true for us. You come to the end of the chapter, verse 23. The words that was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. 
Our spiritual bank account was empty, and Christ made the deposit. His righteousness was credited to our account. So justification, a good common sense way to remember this, justification means that Jesus was treated just as if he'd lived my life, so that I could be treated just as if he'd lived mine. Jesus received what we deserved so that we could receive what he deserved on account of his righteousness. God's justice has thus been satisfied. We can be reconciled to him. We can enjoy his love. We can have a relationship with him. We can be at peace with him. The message of Romans in general, in chapter 5, verse 1 in particular, is that God is the peacemaker. He's the one who takes the initiative here. That's consistent with that big story, remember? Everything that we saw in the Old Testament that God is working to restore this relationship with humanity that's been broken, the one who by all rights should be our enemy is actually the one to make peace with us. Now I recognize on some level as Christians we should all be familiar with all of that. Maybe you're sitting there thinking, why are we listening to that? This should be old hat to all of us. But I'm not sure we fully appreciate the implications of it when it comes to our own relationship with God. We have peace with God through Christ. We come into that relationship with God when we respond to what God's done in Christ in, in faith and in turning to God in repentance and be buried in the waters of baptism. But the real question is, okay, well, what about then? What happens going forward? We know how we have peace with God in Christ. We know how we come into that relationship with Him. But what about that relationship going forward? What about sins that we commit after baptism? Can we be forgiven those? Is only forgiveness of our past sins and then we're sort of on our own after that? You know, the early Christians struggled with this question in the 2nd, the 3rd, the 4th century. This was a, a live topic. Can you be forgiven of sins after baptism? And the liberals in the church said that, yes, you could. Once. Kind of the liberals. The conservatives said, no, you can't. And that accounts for why so many people in those early centuries delayed their baptism to the very end. The most famous example is the Emperor Constantine, who was, at least theoretically, the first Christian emperor. He legalized Christianity, he presided over the Council of Nicaea, and yet he wasn't baptized until his deathbed, because he was afraid, like so many others in his day, that he would sin after his baptism. So we're going to put that off until the last minute. So do we need to do that? Or do we need to be baptized again every time that we sin? Well, no, of course not. And I think we all recognize that that's not the answer. We know that we sin and we can be forgiven. And yet, the problem is, while we realize that intellectually, I think a lot of us still struggle with feeling forgiven. Well, we know we can be forgiven, but... Does it really take, how can God forgive me? How can we forgive ourselves? John gives us the answer to this. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. He says, if we confess our sin, 
He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. To confess our sins means to accuse ourselves openly. It means to be honest, to admit that we are sinners. We've committed evil deeds. And John says in the next verse, he contrasts with confession, with claiming we have no sin. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar. And his word is not in us. We can choose to deny that we're sinners, or we can choose to acknowledge our sins to God. But only if we acknowledge those are we going to be forgiven. And there's a lot more we could say here about the need I think we have in the church to be more open and honest about our weaknesses, to be more vulnerable, to be willing to admit our frailties to each other and to confess our faults one to another, the way James talks about it, to pray for one another. But that's, a, that's another lesson that we don't have time to, to get into tonight. But I think it's worth thinking about living in community here, not trying to pretend to be something that we're not. But another question we sometimes hear, this leads to another one. All right. We know that if we sin and we confess our sins, yes, we can be forgiven. But what if I sin and I die before I have a chance to repent? What if I didn't have that opportunity to confess that sin? I think there are a couple of things to keep in mind here. The first one is maybe best articulated by a character in the movie Rudy. I know Matt will remember this. Maybe some of the rest of you will. Uh, but if you've ever seen that movie, Rudy's concerned about getting into Notre Dame. It's his last opportunity. And he goes to talk to a priest, John Cavanaugh, who was a former president of Notre Dame. And he asks him if there's anything he could do to pull some strings for him. And he says in response, Son, in 30 years of theological studies, I've learned only two hard, incontrovertible truths. One, there is a God, and I'm not Him. It would be good for us to keep that in mind. We're not God, and we know that there is a perfectly just and righteous judge who's going to be in charge of deciding these questions one day. He'll judge this definitively. Now, the best answer to this question and all hypotheticals that we give like this is to try our best not to be in this sort of situation that is not to go before God with any sort of unconfessed sins in our lives try to the best of your ability not to find yourself in that boat but even with that said I think we have some gleanings here towards how we can answer that question and the first thing to consider is what's your overall pattern of life I want you to look at the context here in 1 John chapter 1. Back up to verse number 7. And most all of us will recognize these verses. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. We learn here that Jesus' blood cleanses us from our sin. Not only does it cleanse us, literally it continually cleanses us from our sin if we walk in the light, if we confess our sins. All of these verbal phrases are in the present subjunctive tense, and all that means is this implies that this is a continuous act. This is something that is ongoing. 
So Jesus' blood cleanses us in our baptism, yes. But it continues to cleanse us going forward as long as we're walking in the light, as long as we're confessing our faults. Jesus' blood isn't something that, it doesn't flow from a spigot, you know, it's on to us now, and now we committed a sin, so we're going to turn it off. Now we confess our sins, so we're going to turn it back on, and so on and so forth. That's not the way that it works. It stays on just as long as we're walking and we're confessing as we are. Now, that doesn't mean we don't have responsibilities to be faithful. We're still expected to love God. We're still expected to be obedient to His commands. John talks about that at length in this letter. Go to just a couple of verses later. Chapter 2, verse number 3. By this, we know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments. But, and this is very important, think about what we just read in verses 7 through 10. If we walk in the light, as he's in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus' his Son continually cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Walking in the light includes sin. Do you hear me? I'm not sure we really think about that. Walking in the light includes sin. The issue here is not perfection, it's direction. It's the trajectory of our lives. Are we still being faithful, continuing to walk, continuing to confess? We don't stray so far from the path that we go in a different direction entirely. But we might stumble and fall along the way, but we keep on going, we keep on confessing. John is talking here about the overall pattern of our lives, not are we perfect in keeping God's commandments. Otherwise, we wouldn't need to confess our faults. You see, what we really need to think about here is the underlying assumption of this question. Do we move in and out of salvation every time that we sin? Well, I'm I'm saved now. And then, I, I don't know, I get angry and mad about something for no reason, and so now I'm unsaved. <laughs> and then I repent of this, and so I'm saved again. But then I, um, I don't know, I tell a little white line, so then I'm unsaved, and so on and so forth. Then we move back and forth into these categories each and every time that we sin. I can't find any example in Scripture, any indication that that's the case. Now, can we fall away from God? Yes, absolutely. That's made clear. Uh, the Hebrews writer, Hebrews chapter 6, makes it clear we can fall from grace. We can drive God out of our lives, and it's impossible to renew us. He said, we crucify the Son of God all over again, he says there. But there's no evidence that this happens immediately with every type of sin. And this is why I reminded us of that big story. This is why this is important. We have to remember to begin with that God is seeking to save us not to destroy us. That's what his nature is. Remember, he's unwilling that any should perish. He, he desires all to come to repent. He's not looking for an excuse to condemn us, not like some you know, beast of prey out there ready to pounce on us any time he sees us make a mistake. If God wanted to condemn us, he could have done that without the cross. He could have condemned everyone had that been his will. We have to remember then, too, that Christianity is a growth process. You could go into that same chapter of Second Peter where I'm quoting from and paraphrasing in verse number 9. 
And at the end of that chapter, Peter says, You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you're not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We can look at a number of other passages that talk about the fact that we need to mature, we need to move on from milk to meat, etc. We're not expected to have everything figured out when we first become Christians. Do you know more now than you did when you became a Christian? The things you understand now that you didn't then? I hope so, because if not, you've got another set of problems altogether that we don't really have time to get into in this lesson. But the point is, God doesn't expect or demand that we understand everything at once. So, of course, we're going to grow and we're going to mature. But beyond that, we have evidence in the New Testament of Christians who were in sin and yet who were still in a relationship with God that prove that we don't immediately lose our salvation on any type of sin. Uh, you flip over to 1 Corinthians. I don't know if you remember anything about 1 Corinthians, but the church in Corinth, uh, to say that it's pretty messed up would be an understatement. You have one fellow who's openly living with his father's wife, and it's, it's unrepentant, it's blatant to the extent that uh, Paul says even the Gentiles are scandalized by this. You have different factions in the church, they're cliques, they're dividing up, they're taking each other to uh, court. Uh, there's abuses of the Lord's Supper there. They're turning what should be a, a meal that unifies them into a cause of division. And despite this, in chapter 1, Paul calls them the church of God. He calls them brothers. He calls them saints. He even says down in verse number 30, you are in Christ Jesus. Now, do they need to repent? Yes, absolutely. It's clear from this letter, Paul expects them to repent. And yet, their relationship with God fundamentally hadn't been severed. Verse number four, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you're not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ who will sustain you to the end, guiltless, in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. You can't write about people like that if their relationship with God has been severed. We can think about other churches mentioned in the New Testament. You go to the letters in Revelation of seven churches, the letter to the church in Ephesus. Jesus says to them in chapter 2, verse 5, Remember, therefore, from where you've fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove our lampstand from its place unless you repent. Jesus threatens to remove the lampstand, to end his standing among, to end their standing among his people. But not yet. They're still there at the moment. There's a warning. He would sever the relationship, but they hadn't reached that point yet. So the point of this is, these passages imply that yes, sin can sever our relationship with God, but that's not immediate in every case. We need to consider then, finally, what kind of sin is it that goes unconfessed? And you might wonder, well, why does that matter? There are many faithful Christians who worry that despite their pattern of life, I saw some people nodding when I asked this question early, they'll make some sort of mistake that they don't realize or that they won't have a chance 
to make it right before they die. And the example I usually use of this is, you know, you're up on the ladder working on the roof of your house, and you hit your thumb with the hammer, and you hurt it, and you let out a dirty word, and you get off balance, and you fall off the ladder, and you break your neck, and die. Or you can go to hell then because you curse. That's making light of it, but that is the way we often think about these things when you drill it down into the nuts and bolts here. I can't find anything like that taught in Scripture. Look in the Old Testament and you'll see that God differentiated between types of sins. Numbers chapter 15, there's unintentional sin. And then there's high-handed sin. High-handed sin doesn't even mean that you did something that you knew was a sin. It means that it's rebellious. You're shaking your fist in God's face. You're defiant. You know it's wrong and you just don't care. Jesus speaks of the weightier matters of the law. Paul made distinctions between different categories of sins. He says in Galatians chapter 6 that to someone who has taken in a fall, a trespass, you need to try to restore that person in the spirit of meekness. Consider yourself. You might be tempted too. But on the other hand, about that fellow who's living with his father's wife in 1 Corinthians 5, he says deliver him over to Satan. To those false teachers on Crete, uh, Paul says to the elders, they need to rebuke them harshly, Titus chapter 1. So God's patience with sin seems to relate to uh, the type of sin it is, the level of rebelliousness, the level of influence that it has with us. We need to remember in all of this that God is the one who makes the final decision. The way to be sure that we're right with God is to not have any unrepented, unconfessed sins in our lives. We should want to do His will. We shouldn't want to face Him with any uh, doubts about the things that we've done. But my big point is, we shouldn't fear that God is searching for a reason to condemn us. Because that's not His nature. First John chapter 5, verse number 13. John writes about the whole purpose of this letter. He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. He writes that you may know you have. There's that assurance. It's not sinful to have confidence in your salvation because our confidence is in ourselves. It's in Christ. A congregation uh, did a study, a survey that I think is insightful here as we sum all this up. There were responses from 167 teens and adults to this survey. And the key question of seven questions that they asked was, quote, If you died right now, would you go to heaven? Same one I asked earlier. There were four choices that you could respond with. Yes, no, I don't know, and I think so, but I'm not sure. Now, yes is obviously the only right answer to that. The respondents to that were 94% of them Christians. And this was a Wednesday night crowd, so you know that this was the most uh, active part of your membership that you could have. Of that group, 38% gave one of the three negative answers. And of that 38%, uh, even 37% of those age 65 and older gave one of the negative answers. People who on average have been Christians for 51 years, they weren't sure. And we'd likely find similar results in most congregations. I'd say when I asked earlier that the percentages were about like that. And I've actually seen some that were worse. I preached a similar sermon to this in Liberty, and only two people 
out of, uh, I don't remember how many raised their hand that they were confident. It was much worse than this crowd tonight. The problem is that so many fail to understand what divine forgiveness is. There are some people in that survey who weren't Christians who answered yes, they thought they were saved, and that's the other problem altogether. But I'm more concerned with people like the ones in this audience tonight who doubt their forgiveness. They have a pattern of worship and study and prayer. They're walking in the lines. They're confessing their sins. But they never really truly feel forgiven. I can't tell you how many times I've heard things like I'll tell you one example. This was relatively recently I went to a fellow's house who had had a series of strokes and it appeared he was on his deathbed and I saw him on Monday he could barely talk he wanted me to pray with him and I did I went back a couple of days later and he could talk better and he said I think I want to be baptized again and I said well he's been re-baptized sometime in the past and I wasn't there when that happened and I said, well, I understand you already been baptized. And you were baptized for the right reasons, weren't you? Yeah. You, you understood that you believed in Jesus. Yes. You understood that your sins were being washed away. You wanted to obey Him. Yes. You continued to trust in Him all this time, haven't you? Yeah. You continued to be faithful to Him, haven't you? Yes. Well, you don't need to be baptized again. You just need to trust in Him. He promises you that those sins that were washed away in the past, He continues to wash them away in the future, as long as you continue to remain penitent and remain faithful. You're doing exactly what you need to do. You just need to have faith in what He's promised you. And He said to me, it was almost painful, the way He said, He said, Oh, I never understood that way. I'm going to keep teaching lessons like this as long as people on their deathbed say things to me as others have. I just hope I've been good enough to go to heaven. Well, you know what? You haven't been good enough to go to heaven. (laughs) And thank God it doesn't depend on you being good enough to go to heaven. The problem is we trust in our own weakness instead of trusting in His strength. And we've missed the heart of this message of forgiveness, this blessed assurance that's offered to us. Now tonight, if you're not in Christ, you don't have that assurance. And so I want to urge you to respond to what God has done for you in Christ by putting your faith and your trust in Him, by turning to God in repentance, confessing that Jesus is Lord and being buried with Him in the waters of baptism, have those sins washed away, be added to God's people, embark on that relationship that God desires to have with you. But based on what I saw earlier, most everyone in this audience already is a Christian. If you don't have that confidence that you are, I hope we've done something to bolster that tonight. But if you don't have that confidence because there's sin in your life that you need to confess, I want to urge you to take the opportunity you have to do it now. Whatever your need may be, 
is you need to make changes to ensure that you're walking in the light and to have that blessed assurance that comes with being in a relationship with the Father. Once you come now, while we stand and while we sing.